You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon. We're here, we finally made it to this one. Today, we're gonna talk about the limits of empathy and I cannot wait. Now, I've told you before that empathy is what inspired me to put this journey together in the first place, but I should have been more specific. It was really the limits of empathy that inspired me. Now, I've been looking forward to this very episode because after months and months of seeing displays of empathy from white friends, colleagues, acquaintances, people on the streets, it's taken every ounce of my self-control to not just scream, yo, this is not all we're doing. You haven't done anything yet. You haven't taken any action. You're literally in your feelings. But let me calm down. The last time we talked about how empathy can be a really important piece, important fuel for getting in the right head and heart space to make change. But friends, it is fuel. It is not the car. It is definitely not the destination. As one of our prior guests said in an earlier show, if you're on a road that ends in sympathy or empathy, you're on the wrong road. And I think we know this. We've seen glimmers of awareness, sympathy, and empathy at prior racial flashpoints, but we have remained stubbornly stuck in place as a society. Now, it can't be denied that the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor brought in a much louder and a much broader level of response from a much bigger and a more diverse coalition of people than maybe any prior moment of racial injustice, at least that I've witnessed personally. Our nation has been engaged in the longest lasting public conversation and reckoning with race that I can remember. But we cannot afford to rest on our laurels and assume that change will just magically flow from this fount of feelings. Because most of what we've seen so far is largely performative. I would see a post about someone reading White Fragility here, maybe making a donation to the Equal Justice Institute there, or even casting the first Black Bachelor after 18 seasons, we see you, ABC. But what changes are we making that will really last? What's going to eliminate the need for my now three-year-old son to not have to do a similar kind of podcast like this one, issuing another fervent call for his generation of fellow citizens 30 years from now? The evidence that we can avoid this so far is scant. So let's talk about it. Empathy is very important, and for many, it feels good, almost like a release. But it will not free us by itself from the established patterns of shock, outrage, protest, and then complacency. So I invited my dear and brilliant friend, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, on the pod today to break it down. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. A particle cosmologist by training, she is a dark matter theorist and also conducts research in black feminist science, technology, and society studies. She is one of under 100 black women 
to have a PhD from a department of physics. She's an outspoken and inspiring voice on issues of race, gender, queer identity, and decolonizing science and the overall American landscape. Basically, when I want to figure out if I'm on the right side of important social issues, I just think to myself or sometimes ask, where's Chanda? Because that's probably where we need to be. Chanda, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I definitely took a friend shortcut just to get you on here. So thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And it's so cool to be on your inaugural season. Congratulations. I'm excited. Thank you so, so much. So you know that I've been waiting to have this discussion and with you specifically. So I feel like we don't need any more lead-in. So if I say to you, empathy is important in racial justice work, but it's not the goal. What pops into your head immediately? What are some of the clear limits that you see around empathy when it comes to moving this work forward? So my introduction to empathy and compassion as concepts really came from the, the Zen Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh. And so I think that there's a distance between, for example, how Thai, as we call him, conceptualizes empathy and compassion and the way that those words get thrown around in at least American society, which is that sometimes people think like, oh, empathy is, well, yeah, I can kind of see where she's coming from, like, or that I feel bad for you, which is like, actually, I think sympathy and empathy don't have enough of a distinction in our communities. So I can imagine a scenario where empathy actually is enough, but then that really means that Thich Nhat Hanh is a survivor of the Vietnam War and then did work with Vietnam, with American veterans to do healing around what had happened between Vietnamese people and American people during that time. And so I think empathy actually means doing that work. But most of the time, that's actually really not what people mean when they say empathy. And I think they really most of the time mean sympathy with like maybe a side of extra feeling. <laughs> You're so right, right? It, it's, it's the like, I feel it, but I feel it deeply, deeply. Is that it? Yeah, or I feel it to the tune of, a $500 donation instead of a $100 donation, <laughs> which yeah. is like still, but you know, I'm not going to stop doing business as usual or really rethink how I have organized my life or how we have organized society so that some people remain on the bottom and some people remain on the top. And actually, can I give an example from the physics community about this? Yes. Which is that I feel like in, in the physics community, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's really messed up. And I think like it's easy to like Google black physicists and find all sorts of things that kind of give you the lay of the land in some sense. But for example, I'm like very aware. I just won an award a couple of weeks ago for my professional society. Congratulations. Thank you. It's the Edward Boucher Award. So it's named after the first African-American to earn a PhD in the United States. And he was also the first black PhD in physics in the United States and in the world that we know of. And this is an award that goes to underrepresented minorities who have accomplished both making significant contributions to physics and making significant contributions to the advancement of underrepresented minorities in the field. In 26 years of giving the award, the award has only gone to black women twice. It's almost exclusively gone to either black men or Latinx people. Most of the Latinx people are very light-skinned, light-presenting. I'm very conscious of the fact, so 
I'm the second black woman. The first one was last year. She and I are about the same skin tone. People are willing to talk about like, oh, it's so great that we're finally getting black women who win this award, but they're not willing to have the tougher conversation of why is it that the the black women that are succeeding in these ways are also typically like the light skinned black women. And that's not to say that Nadia and I didn't face racism because she and I both have our stories. But for me, that's always a reminder to go back to the practice of if I have my stories, I need to multiply that. And I need to push my community to go further, deeper in their conversation. So that's kind of a long-winded example. But there's the superficial of, yes, we need to count numbers, but then we need to talk about something deeper than just what are the numbers. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, for me, what it amounts to is that it's this idea of getting so stuck in your feelings that to your point, you forget to actually act and reflect and go further. Or even worse, you mistake those feelings for action themselves. So I want to unpack both of these phenomenon. So on the forgetting to act piece, I think the clearest example of this is when a non-Black person becomes so emotionally attuned in their minds to anti-Black racism, that they are quick to point it out, especially when they see it in other people, but then they don't do anything further, right? They can write deeply moving pieces on social media. They can share deeply impactful reflections even on race, either one-to-one or more publicly, but the receipts of their specific action is so limited, whether it's in their own lives, in their companies, in their families, it's just very, very thin. And then connected to that, we have the mistake of thinking that feelings by themselves are action. And here we have a subtle distinction because this is when the person who's displaying empathy knows that they need to do the work, quote unquote, like they know the lingo because they've probably read all the right books, but they actually think just expressing that empathy to a black person in any kind of public way is what we mean when we say doing the work. And I think that what we need to drive home is that breaking your silence or breaking with what Robin D'Angelo calls white solidarity around race, yeah, maybe that can be a start of how you begin to think about doing the work, but that can't be considered the work. Now, I know you've seen this play out in your own work as an academic who's very outspoken on issues of race and racism and anti-Blackness in academia and more broadly, and the work that you've done to organize in these spaces around racial justice. Can you share some concrete examples just of times when aspiring or even just self-described allies focus more on the sharing of the feelings of empathy versus the actual taking of steps to do something about the problem? I suspect that every Black person in 2020 has experienced some fatigue around someone has their awakening and then really wants to process their feelings about what the last like couple of months have been like. Like suddenly they're like, I'm really feeling it. Oh my God, it's everywhere. Did you realize it's everywhere? Well, in fact, (laughs) we had realized it was everywhere, right? So I definitely think that there is also that element of not thinking about, does this Black person in front of me really need to hear my rant about how systemic racism is a thing? Like, is that's actually anti-work and that you're basically asking them to perform emotional labor of being there with you as you process your feelings? I know people are going to get in their feelings about this, but this like sort of borders on treating people like mammy. Be there for me as I realize your pain. What I actually need you to do is figure out how to go talk to your people and deal with it. 
I have definitely had that experience of even fellow professors and physics departments, or not necessarily in my department, but people coming to me and really wanting to talk about it or emailing me and saying, I get a lot of emails from like randos who are like, can we just talk about this? And I'm like, I don't even know you. You found my email address and thought that I had time to come and talk to you. And I guess the the one thing that I kind of want to say about this is, you know, there's this, this great line from the Talmud. I'm Jewish, so I always come back to Jewish stuff. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. So people also get in their heads of like, I have to do everything. And if I can't do everything, then I just like have to tweet about how helpless I feel. Mm-hmm. There's a middle ground. There's a big middle ground in between those two things. (laughs) If anything, those two things are points on the line. And there's literally the entire line in between. Yes, the entire. Literally pick any specific thing to do. I mean, I think you're so right because we talked about this on the sympathy episode as well. In this particular moment, one thing that was different was this sort of broad and wide call to white people to check on their black friends. I understand the intention of that, but man, was it really misinterpreted because to your point, it really became like they were processing those feelings and then they would offload them to different black people in their lives to either carry or to help them sort of feel better in some weird way to be like, no, I mean, yeah, it's hard, but like, I, I didn't, I was like, am I supposed to at some point say, no, 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 it's not that bad. Like, I don't want you to be so upset because it's like, I can't say that, right? Am I supposed to like, like, I was literally sometimes very speechless because I was like, I don't want to be an asshole. Yeah. But I don't know how this conversation is advancing things. And I don't even feel like you called me to advance things. You just wanted, I don't, I don't know what you wanted. I guess like the question I also had about that particular phenomenon is there are people that you're friends with more than acquaintances. You're not going to travel together or go out of your way to meet up in between two cities that you happen to be in or something like that. And then there are people that like you would do that for. And I did kind of wonder how many people were like, well, I have this black person's phone number and we've had good conversations in the past. As opposed to, this is someone I text with like every other day, and I really do just need to be like, what do you need? What can I do for you right now? Which I actually have a white gay theoretical physicist friend who actually has been doing that with me like a couple of times a week. And it's actually been really amazing to have someone do those check-ins with me because he's been persistently like the one person who just like is there. He's someone that I talked to a lot before. And so part of it was just like shifting the nature of now the conversations can't just be gossip. I need to ask Chanda what I can help her with right now. This is so important because one of the key points that you're raising, Chanda, is that people really need to be emotionally intelligent about the nature of their relationships with people when they do these check-ins. Ideally, you need to genuinely have a relationship with the Black person that you're checking in with. This is because the experience of systemic racism, all the big and small ways that it shows up in my life and in the lives of other Black people, can actually be quite personal. I may not be able to just jump right into that with someone that I don't feel emotionally safe with and don't have an established intimacy with. And the request to do that so that you as a non-Black person can get more data to support the case that you're building now that racism is real is kind of a lot to ask someone that is in the midst of trauma themselves at that moment. 
So I just love that you provided an example of how this can be done empathetically and thoughtfully. I have another friend that I can use as an example as well. In the height of the summer and the fall, when things were really heating up, she made it a point to make sure that I knew that she was available to me. And it was all of the little things like checking in to say, hey, I read your post about race and it really helped me to see a few things differently. Thank you for sharing your voice. Or I have another friend who, when everything was really heating up and she could see and tell how stressed I was, and this is one of my best friends, she knows that I'm a big foodie. And so she started sending me every once in a while a Postmates dinner or a Postmates cocktail and just letting me know that she was thinking of me. I mean, those are things that really made me feel seen and loved and valued, but didn't add extra emotional labor to my plate, didn't give me an assignment, and didn't ask me to sort of help to make someone feel better about what was going on. It was just a matter of, hey, I'm here for you. It's just helpful for people to hear examples because the takeaway isn't don't call anyone. The takeaway on this point is if what you're feeling in this moment is empathy and you really want to demonstrate that, you need to make sure that you're doing it in a way that is actually removing burden from the person that you're communicating with and not adding it. It gets to even your first example of teachings of empathy and maybe like we've moved away from sort of what empathy is supposed to be at its core. It sounds like at its core, it actually is not just feelings. It's feelings plus action at its core. Yeah, I definitely, I'm thinking a lot also about what you said This isn't how you put it, but I think these conversations about how we're doing are very intimate questions. Yes. And so there is this level of foisting intimacy onto a relationship where it did not exist already. Exactly. Because there was some meme that said, check on your Black friends and not thinking about the fact that these are very deeply personal experiences for people where the reason that people need to be checked on is because people are feeling messed up right now. People are feeling harmed. They're struggling psychologically. They're struggling emotionally. And I'm definitely finding that people, I think one of the places where we see empathy deficiency is people have a really hard time processing what is behind the words. I told someone recently that I couldn't do a bunch of meetings as part of a virtual talk that I was giving. And I laid out a few different things that were happening that were going on. And then she asked what my schedule was. And I gave her my schedule, which was like, these are the times when I am available. But I thought I had laid clear boundaries if I can only do so much. Right. And then she filled all of my free time for those two days with meetings. And I was pretty angry about it and basically said like, no. I'm I'm not going to do all of this stuff. And afterwards, after I, the visitation had ended, she she emailed me and said, like, look, I realize now that when you were saying to me these things were happening in your life, I didn't take seriously that they might be really impactful to you. <laughs> and this is someone who I tend to think of as like relatively speaking conscientious, but people just really have a hard time processing that like our feelings are strong. And that that's like not us being like weird. (laughs) It's not a theoretical examination of what racism. It's like, no, literally watching this happen to a person who looks like me, especially for me as a mother, right? Raising what will someday be 
a black man that probably will not be a small black man, that is psychologically traumatizing. And I remember right around April or May, so many great pieces of writing came out of this period as more and more Black people were sort of finding their voice. But I saw this one headline that really stuck with me. And it was basically something to the effect of, I'm literally traumatized by seeing Black death every day, but I'll have that PowerPoint to you by 10. Yeah, that's life right now. (laughs) That's life. That's where we are, right? You're having to turn off a certain portion of your humanity, a large portion of it. So that's, think about that level of emotional labor, just to sort of like continue to be productive and show up in the spaces and places and for the people and relationships that need you. And then think about being that additional straw on that person's back. Like ideally you want to show up to take some straws off of my back. Yes. And I guess I'm thinking about how much of this is like socialization in the sense that, you know, as someone who's a black Ashkenazi Jew, I have grown up with two sensibilities around histories of oppression and violence. Um, That on the one side, my family was enslaved and experienced colonialism. And because of that, had a particular like kidnapping and then migration pattern in the Americas, right? And then on the other side, my family was escaping pogroms and also experiencing violence in, in I wouldn't compare them, right? But there's there's narratives of violence on both sides. And then I had an uncle who escaped Nazi Germany and then went back as an American soldier and was part of the, the liberating force. And I grew up with a really strong sense, I feel like from school, of what the Holocaust was and how damaging it was and how traumatic it was for Jews and how this is a trauma that Jews still live with, even Jews who didn't have families who survived the Holocaust or perished in the Holocaust. And for some reason, we don't have that same sensibility around anti-Blackness in the United States. Yeah. And for me, that's not a competition. It's not like, oh, well, white Jews and, and Ashkenazi Jews shouldn't have those sensibilities and people shouldn't be creating that space for confronting the violence of the Holocaust and ongoing anti-Semitism, which is real. But it's clear to me that some of it is socialization. We are taught to have a, a level of sensitivity and concern for the Jewish experience. And we are simply not taught to have that same sensibility about the Black experience in the Americas, regardless of which where borders landed around or over or on top of you. And similarly, I think with Indigenous peoples, that we, we don't have that conversation about like genocide, et cetera. But, and I think it doesn't just impact people who aren't us, that we also have to work to have that empathy with ourselves because we are trained to be detached. 100%. One thing I've been thinking about a lot at this moment as words like allyship and anti-racism are just trending right now. People understand that we shouldn't be so detached, right? Like we should be tapping into some sort of communal connection around humanity. One of the things that I think is more prevalent than ever is this idea that allyship and anti-racism are purely partisan issues. So on the one side, I see people on the far right basically attacking any form of true historical reckoning with America's record on race, right? But then on the other side, I see people on the far left or even just on the left period almost trying to take a bit of a high ground, right? 
that like, you know, we get it. And so I think that while, of course, there are some pretty clear examples of ways that liberally and progressively political people and that end of the spectrum has been more beneficial in addressing some aspects of racism, you know, compared to those on the more conservative end. I think that there's some pretty big blind spots on the left side of the aisle when it comes to race. I've often shared that for me, some of the hardest people to have deep and challenging conversations about race with are white progressives. And I think this is largely because they feel like they've already nailed it, right? And in some ways, what they've nailed is the feelings side of the equation, sympathy and empathy. But they don't realize that there actually is more to it than that. It's not just about feeling bad for people of color. It's about more than that. So I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about how and where you see this showing up and what might be the most useful and motivating thing that we could say to liberals and progressives about how sort of focusing solely on empathy is actually holding them back from doing real work? I think actually like a valuable thing to think about here is the history of the term white privilege, which actually originates conceptually. I mean, you can you can go back to W.B. Du Bois, right, and thinking about the wages of whiteness. And, and there's also George Lipschitz. But I think of Noel Ignatiev and oh, I think it's Theodore Allen, Ted Allen, I think is the right name who wrote these letters to progressive labor where they talk about white skin privilege, not white privilege, but white skin privilege. And what they were trying to articulate, this is actually, I'm I'm maybe scare people a little bit. This is a Marxist analysis. It doesn't mean we're communists, but we're just using a (laughs) Marxist economic and power analysis, right? We're allowed. Right. We're allowed. Okay. I have understanding that whiteness is an added value that helps divide working class people from each other so that they don't unite around shared interests, which was like, you will always have an interest in being white so that you have something that black poor people don't have. And I think that what we've seen in the last like 40 years, 50 years, is that people kind of took this and stripped it a little bit of its edge to say, okay, let's talk about white privilege, where that just means that I can get foundation that matches me. And while yes, like foundation that matches you is actually like an important thing for self-image, it also is something that goes much more deeply, which is that we are supposed to be able to unite with each other. And when you can't confront the reality that whiteness is a phenomenon, that you cannot enact that unity. You can't actually overcome the barrier if you won't talk about the barrier's existence. And I feel like we see this a lot I would say we saw this during the presidential campaigns for primaries. There were huge debates about like, is it class or is it race? And the whole point of the concept of white skin privilege was that race is part of class. Yes. And I really think that that piece needs to come back into the conversation, which is that you have to acknowledge the ways in which the whiteness operates. I guess that's what I that's what I was thinking about as I was listening to you is just that like a lot of people don't want to talk about whiteness is still operating between two people, even if you think you're on the same page. 150%. One of the dangers of empathy again, and something that we really need to sort of get to the root of, is you never want your sort of practice or your connection or even your awakening to take you to the point where you feel so steeped in and connected to the experiences of Black people that you feel like you can start to speak for them. So I'll I'll share a really quick example 
in a company that I worked at formerly, I had created a process to ensure that a diverse group of employees would be able to weigh in on important strategic decisions for the business. Now, I had to do this because the demographics of our company overall meant that we couldn't just assume if a group of five or six or 10 or 20 or 30 people on a team gathered, that there would automatically be representation for underrepresented people in that room, right? There still might not be a Black or a Latinx or a queer person in the room. So we needed to actually create a process to do that. So when I was putting it together, a straight white person asked me if they could join this panel so that they could learn from the other perspectives. And then over time, maybe we wouldn't need this because you know, we'll start to really know what those POVs are and we can just implement it and share it. No. I'm like covering my eyes right now, right? Like, <laughs> This is a real life anecdote, but I think that this happens, like this is a very glaring example, hopefully, and maybe it's just by the way in which I explained it. But I think there is this tendency that comes up very often. And for me, I'm like, no, we will stop needing this process when we have a workforce that organically includes the people that we need this process to include. Not when enough white people feel equipped to speak on behalf of the others, we need to have the others, right? So I think this can be one of the limits of empathy because it is asking you to say, you know, think about what it might be to walk in someone else's shoes, really put that persona and that perspective on and let it shape the way that you are looking at whatever it is that you're looking at. But the danger is that you might start to think, oh, I don't need to consult that other person anymore. Now I get it. So I already know that you have an opinion on this and I am dying to hear it. So how can people who want to be allies, especially white people, ensure that their empathy doesn't make them presumptuous about what is best for black people and what is best for this movement? Yeah, I mean, like, let's just back up and think about it. What a strange thought, like a movement for black people without black people. What is that? (laughs) Like you are actually subverting the stated goal when you take black people out of the equation and actually returning to like a very white supremacist and deeply American white supremacist tradition of black culture without black people. Like I actually think that that's kind of what that is and maybe not just black people, but let's just take black people as an example, right? Which is like an extremely extractive relationship, but in the name of progressive values. So I think that that's one thing. And then I think the other thing I mean, I think about this a lot in my feminist theory work is the idea that you can just think about what it must be like to be in someone's shoes and that your thought is therefore data that is as high quality as actually being in that person's shoes. And this happens a lot in the physics community and I'm sure other communities too, to the point where I actually gave the phenomenon a name, white empiricism, which is the belief that Well, I'll just take the example because both of us are Black. You come to me and tell me that there was some stuff that was super colorist and there was clearly some preferential treatment towards someone because they were lighter skinned or had like type two, type three hair or something like that. And then I said, you know, I've read books by darker skinned women and I just, I don't think that your assessment of the situation is right. 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 And so like, I don't think like the power dynamic of whiteness versus a black person and between two black people with different levels of experience of racism is the same thing. But I think there's something analogous there, which is thinking that I know what it's like to be in your shoes 
And actually, it can go in both directions, which is that I think sometimes people have fantasies about what it would be like if my hair was just a little bit straighter, not to be white, but to have hair a little bit straighter. And I think we all need to kind of have some humility about what we think we know about people's experiences when those people could just tell us what their experiences are. It's a humility thing. And it's so funny that you said when people start to organize for Black lives or for Black communities without Black people, that should be a really bright, shiny red flag. Big red flag. For you, right? As about (laughs) in terms of maybe I shouldn't proceed because something is missing here. And I do think that it can get a little, I don't want to say complex, though it is complex. Maybe I want to say confusing. Because I do think, and I've had conversations with white aspiring allies and anti-racists, that what they are holding in their heads sometimes is this idea that I don't want to put additional labor on a Black person by involving them in X, Y, and Z. I can just solve it. However, I think that that needs to be disambiguated from an idea that you can put together an entire strategy for how we can move forward on centering and elevating and honoring Black lives without Black people in it. I'm wondering if you can help to detangle a little bit. We usually try to end our episodes with an FAQ, a frequent ally question. And I think this is one of them. How do I balance, as a white person, this idea that I don't want to overburden Black people with the work of, quote unquote, fixing racism? I know that it's my problem. However, I also don't want to decenter and exclude Black people from the work of addressing racism. Do you have any thoughts about how someone can address that? So I want to start by pointing to an asymmetry, which is that, you know, one could arguably say what I just said about humility and not assuming you know what it's like to be in other people's shoes. There's a big difference between being a white person trying to understand the Black experience and the way that Black people have to be conscious of the white experience which is that for Black people, knowing white life is a matter of survival. Correct. And when your life completely depends on understanding how a community functions structurally and even on some level individually, it changes how you spend your time, what you use your brain power to do. And so one, I would encourage people to actually daily think about that. Think about what if your life depended on understanding what it meant to make Black Lives Matter, you would figure that shit out. And so I think the the piece of advice that I would offer is make yourself into someone who can do the work with me. I have a couple of, of white friends that I can call on and I might send them the same text message that I might send you complaining about some racism that happened at work. Because I know that like 99% of the time, they're going to be like, yo, what the hell, right? And that's because they put in the work of preparing themselves to be there in the trenches with me. And so of course, people will say, okay, but like, how do I get started? Those people really did their work of doing the reading being willing to get yelled at when they messed up. Both of them have heard it from me when when they have messed up. Dusting their shoulders off and coming back to it. Taking every opportunity where they had a chance to learn and actually taking that opportunity and doing it. 
and not waiting for their one black friend to answer the phone and have long conversations with them. The array of resources that are available to people right now, particularly now that many of us have the internet, is extraordinary. So your problem right now is not that you don't know how to learn or don't have the resources. Your problem is how you're going to find the time to get through all of them. But again, you're not obligated to read everything, but you're obligated to do something. Yeah, totally. There's so much in what you said. I mean, I think there are lessons in resilience, right? There's lessons in commitment. Huge. You must be resilient. You cannot be fragile. You can't fall apart when you make a mistake. Because you will, right? That that I make mistakes. We all do. Constantly, right? Even as a Black person trying to support my community and elevate my community doesn't mean that I have it all figured out. I have some lived experience, but I have tons of blind spots because I too have been socialized in a white supremacist society. And we have disagreements, right? Like some of us feel really strongly about capitalizing the W in white, and some of us feel really strongly about not capitalizing the W in white. Like I think at points, or maybe even right now, you and I are on opposite sides of that equation. And actually, people need to also be prepared for Black people are going to disagree, and no one Black person is your magical guide. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that is so important because I can't tell you the number of times. So whether it's at work or because of how often I write about race in my, you know, on my social media, et cetera, I'll get a lot of inbound questions from people trying to like leveraging me to be sort of the, the guide, right? How should we do this? What about this? And a lot of times I've gotten a number of times questions from people being like, so I have this dilemma and I asked this black person and they said this, and then I asked this other black person and they said this, what does it mean? It means we are people. <laughs> it means that we don't all agree. We are people just like white people. Right? I can't be a tiebreaker. I can't say definitely this Black opinion, definitely not that Black opinion. I can say here's my opinion. Here's what it's informed by. Here's why I think that this is what we should do. But it doesn't invalidate the fact that another Black person may have a different point of view informed by whoever their sources are. And I'm, I'm going to leave without even naming some Black people that I think definitely don't follow those, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about, right? There are people. <laughs> yeah, I was really tempted to name one. <laughs> I was thinking about someone in particular, and I was like, I will leave that person out of my mouth. But I think you know when you are engaging with someone that truly is interested in advancing the Black community. And within that cohort of people, there's still going to be a multiplicity of of opinions and, and of perspectives because there's a multiplicity of life experiences and sources and leaders and thinkers. You know, so it's not about getting to the sole Black opinion that's going to guide you. But as someone who's committed to anti-racism, hopefully, you are trying to arm yourself with more and more information, more and more perspectives, doing more and more of your own work. I don't know why this analogy has been stuck in my head, so I'll just try it out. I was thinking about veganism. So I'm not a vegan, right? Now, nor am I. Going on record, we like meat. Yes. But 
I talk to a lot of people, I have a lot of friends who are, and for them, the level of research, the level of commitment, the questions that they had that they were determined to seek answers to, how am I going to get protein? What about this? What will the impact? Like so much commitment to that lifestyle, not expecting that like it was going to be easy, but they were basically saying, this is something that I'm committed to and I'm willing to figure it out. If in general, non-Black people and especially the white community and white people who care about moving this issue forward would take half of the gumption that they have for figuring out veganism and being like, you know what? I don't care if it's complicated. I don't care if three Black people have three different opinions. I'm going to figure this out. I don't care if you yell at me. I'm coming back to the table. I don't care what happens. This is my lifestyle. And if I fall off the wagon, I get back on it. If there was half of that level of commitment and stick to we might be able to get somewhere. I really love that analogy because you're right. It is a whole lot of work to do veganism. So much. And actually, like, you know, the funny, like one of one of my dearest friends, like someone I would consider like family is a very committed vegan and feminist philosopher, Alexis Shotwell. And something she actually had to call me. I was not eating certain foods because I was trying to avoid eating food from places that were experiencing drought. And she had to call me and be like, look, I need you to just eat like whatever you need to eat for your body to be okay right now. And so actually, like I'm thinking particularly of Alexis, because for her, she thinks a lot about the racism in the vegan community. Yeah. And actually what came up for me also is the irony of people's ability to be that committed to the one thing and then to not draw the connection and to also not be flexible in the needed ways, which was that like, I think Alexis deeply believes in why she is eating as a vegan person and living as a vegan person. And she also understands that there are issues that matter beyond that, including me being able to do the work that I do. And that matters more than making me align with her particular choices. And that's another way. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be vegan, but like, you know, there are ways in which we can disagree with each other or think that's not the way I would do it, but also figure out like, how do I support you? Because I know that you're doing good work and I need to hold your humanity up and I need to help you hold your humanity together. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we could talk for a lot longer, but it's probably a good idea to wrap it up. And that feels like a really perfect note to end on, which is commit to your anti-racism the way that your most committed vegan friend is committed to their veganism, even if it's not you. Right. So Chanda, thank you so much for being here and sharing your voice. Where can people follow you and your work? Yeah. So people can go to my website, profcpw.com. I have a book coming out on March 9th, 2021, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred. Please, if you can afford to pre-order it, pre-order it. I would really appreciate you. You'll get it on, on March 9th. You can also, you know, stick my name into Google and you will find my my Twitter account. But, you know, I have to say, I'm not sure I recommend Twitter to people. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, that's our show today. Again, I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. 
Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at Studio Pod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time, 